I recently moved. My girlfriend and I were researching apartments for the first half of the year, and we finally settled on one. It's an affordable three-bedroom flat located in the suburbs. Not too bad of a commute to and from our jobs, either. The building's old, though. 115 years old, to be exact. It's creaky, but in all the right ways. Speaking from a spooky perspective, of course. We found the place through my girlfriend's mother. You see, she referred us to an old landlord of hers. His name is John. Because he was honest and fair. And he seems to be. So far, anyway. When John showed us the apartment, he told us he knew it was a great place in great shape because he was the previous tenant for over five years. He had just moved about ten miles down the road, and he wanted tenants to move in soon, which is why the rent was so reasonable. The garage in our driveway was rented as a storage unit by someone else off property, and the lower half of the house was being rented by a small, quiet family. They only moved in about a month before we did. During the move, I noticed we had an attic with a pull-down ladder in the ceiling of our hallway, but it had a large padlock on it. John said that's not ours, my girlfriend answered. I guess he uses it for something. And while the eerie expeditions I had bubbling in my brain quickly dissipated, I couldn't help but think to myself, what's locked away up in that attic? Upon moving in, we noticed the large amount of mail we'd received from people who no longer reside in what's now our apartment. When I complained about the mail issue, my girlfriend assured me this happens when moving to someplace new. But what was odd was that John was the previous tenant, and for over five years, so he told us. Yet I hadn't seen a single piece of mail with his name on it. From credit card offers to grocery store coupons, I don't think I ever seen the same name twice. Well, except for one, that is. Crystal Hernandez. I remember that name because we'd get more than enough mail for her daily. And not just junk mail, either. Internet bills, hospital bills credit card bills, even a few boxes filled with DVRs, internet modems, things all overdue asking to be returned. It's as if she simply up and vanished one day. If John lived here for over five years as he claims, why would someone still have this as their billing address? Wouldn't they get the hint by now that they're not receiving anything and maybe look into it? We tried sending it back, returning it to sender, but most of the mail wouldn't be taken for some reason. So, for now, I'm creating a little pile of Crystal Hernandez's mail. It's not shaping up to be so little anymore, though. Last night we were laying in bed and suddenly it hit me. Crystal Hernandez didn't move, I loudly announced to my girlfriend. Oh no, she moaned. I want to be able to sleep tonight. She's in our attic, I morbidly exclaimed. A macabre statement, I'm sure. Said so excitedly that it could only be coming from my mouth. But I will admit there are no odd smells, nor do I hear any creaking coming particularly from the attic. But hey, a guy can dream, right? I figured I'll make sure to move Crystal Hernandez's ever-growing pile of mail directly underneath the attic door. After all, giving the corpse in my apartment's attic some light reading material is the least I could do. Plus, who knows, with the amount of mail we get, she may even have company over there.
It's Alive Podcast presents Shock Shock Sessions. Sessions. Brief horror-related topics, individually produced and presented by myself or my equally eerie, entertaining co-host, Eric. Before we get started, I'd like to express that tonight's episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. You see, I'd like to give you guys the full picture, and to do that, I have to paint with my words. And this painting's gonna get pretty messy. Are you still with me? Oh, good. Here, why don't you dry yourself off from the rain, lend me your ear, and let's start tonight's shock session. Personally speaking, I always viewed Count Dracula as the poster monster of horror. Bela Lugosi's classic portrayal more specifically, many might go to Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster or perhaps something entirely different since the horror genre is so broad. But Count Dracula, or the vampire in general, is one of horror's most popular subjects, and with good reason. But what lures so much interest into the vampire mythology? Is it the often fantasy-like tales of seduction that draw people in? Is it the fact that vampires are often presented as the most human monsters from a physical perspective? With that being said, is that what makes the vampire more frightening? The fact that behind the eyes of a handsome man, beautiful woman, or even harmless child hides a soulless, bloodthirsty monster? Whatever makes the tales of the vampire so engaging may not simply be one answer, but it's clear that it makes for great fiction. But what happens if, in some cases, it isn't fiction? The Vampire of Sacramento Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950, in Santa Clara, California. He was raised in a strict household and was often abused by both his mother and father. By the age of 10, Chase exhibited evidence of the McDonald Triad, a psychiatric study which is seen as possible indicators of future violent tendencies. It was then where he also developed a penchant for killing and mutilating animals and fire-starting, all common traits amongst serial killers in their youth. By his teens, he was known as an alcoholic and a chronic drug abuser. In high school, Chase had a handful of girlfriends, none of whom he was able to maintain a steady relationship with, partly due to the inability to become aroused in the presence of females. Upon consulting a psychiatrist, Chase was told that the root of his problems was either repressed rage or mental illness, and it was perceived that he had an aversion to conventional sex. That being told, Chase did not seek any further treatment after this diagnosis. Chase developed hypochondria as he matured, which is an anxiety of having serious illness. He often complained that his heart would occasionally stop beating, or that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. That's what carries the blood to the heart and lungs. He would hold oranges on his head, believing vitamin C would be absorbed by his brain through diffusion. Chase also believed that his cranial bones had become separated and were moving around, 
so he shaved his head in order to keep a watchful eye on this activity. As an adult, Chase began to accuse his mother of attempting to murder him via poison. It was then where Chase's father forced him to move out of the home. That led to Chase renting an apartment with a few roommates. Chase's roommates complained that he was constantly intoxicated on alcohol, marijuana, and LSD. Other complaints were that he would walk around the apartment nude, even in front of company. His roommates demanded that he move out. When he refused, they moved out instead. Alone in his new apartment, it was then where Chase began to capture, kill, and disembowel various animals, which he would then devour raw. He then began to put the entrails of the animals he had killed into a blender in order to make what I can only describe as gut smoothies. Chase reasoned that by drinking these smoothies he was preventing his heart from shrinking. He feared that if it shrank too much, it would disappear, and then he would die. In 1975, the 25-year-old Chase was involuntarily committed to a mental institution upon being taken to a hospital after he injected rabbit's blood into his veins. During his stay, he often shared with the staff fantasies about killing rabbits. Chase escaped from the hospital and went home to his mother. He was apprehended and was then sent to an institution for the criminally insane. There, he was once found with blood smeared around his mouth. Hospital staff soon discovered that he had been drinking the blood of birds and had thrown the carcasses out of his room window. It was then where the staff began referring to him as Dracula. While he was held in the institution, he claimed to have extracted blood from a therapy dog to curb his addiction, having obtained the syringes by cracking open the disposable boxes left in the doctor's offices. Chase was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia after undergoing a battery of treatments involving psychotropic drugs, which are chemical substances that change brain function and result in alterations in perception or behavior. Chase was deemed no longer a danger to society, and... In 1976, he was released into the recognizance of his parents. His mother, deciding that her son didn't need to be on the anti-schizophrenic medication that he had been prescribed, weaned him off of it. It wasn't shortly after that Richard's parents put him up at his own apartment. Chase, now free and unmedicated, began to worsen. It was around this time where Chase began to, once again, capture, torture, and drink the blood of rabbits, dogs, and cats. On occasion, he killed and ate neighbors' pets, and at least once contacted the neighbor by telephone to explain what he had done. At the same time, he developed a fascination for firearms and purchased several handguns, with which he practiced obsessively. He became fascinated by the crimes of the Hillside Strangler, as he believed the Strangler was also the victim of a Nazi or UFO conspiracy that he believed he was the victim of. It was around this time that Chase also began to lose interest in caring for himself. He neglected personal hygiene, such as bathing, grooming, and brushing his teeth. He stopped eating and dropped to a fairly meager weight of 145 pounds. On August 3rd, 1977, Nevada State Police discovered Chase's truck lodged in a sand drift near Pyramid Lake, Nevada. Inside were two rifles, a pile of clothes, a bucket full of blood, and a cow's liver. The officers tracked down Chase, who was naked and screaming in the sand, soaked from head to toe in blood. When questioned, 
He claimed that the blood was his own, and that it had leaked out of him through his own flesh. No charges were filed. Later that same month, Chase rang his mother's doorbell and greeted her by thrusting a dead cat in her face. He then threw the feline to the ground, knelt down, ripped open its stomach with his bare hands, and stuck his hands inside the cat, smearing its blood all over his face while he was screaming. His mother calmly returned inside the house and did not report the incident to anyone. On December 27, 1977, Chase fired a 22 handgun into the home of a Sacramento woman. A police search of the woman's home found the slug in her kitchen, yet no one was harmed. At this point in time, it seems that Richard Chase couldn't contain his literal bloodlust to simple birds and rabbits. It was from then on that he decided to change his delicate blood diet from common animals to human beings. Just two days later, on December 29, 1977, Richard Chase killed his first victim in a drive-by shooting in an apparent warm-up for the crimes he had planned on committing. The victim was named Ambrose Griffin, a 51-year-old engineer and father of two, who was helping his wife bring groceries into their home. One of Griffin's sons reported seeing a neighbor walking around their East Sacramento neighborhood with a 22 rifle earlier that week. The neighbor's rifle was seized, but ballistics tests determined that it was not the murder weapon. However, it was determined that the 22 used to kill Ambrose Griffin was the same one used to fire the bullet into the kitchen of that Sacramento woman just two days earlier. On January 25, 1978, Chase attempted to enter the neighborhood home of a woman, but finding that her doors were locked, went into her backyard and walked away. Chase later told detectives that he took locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome, but that unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. Now, anyone who's familiar with vampire lore knows the rule how vampires often need an invitation to enter someone else's property. While wandering around the neighborhood, Chase encountered a girl named Nancy Holden, with whom he had attended high school. He attempted to get a ride from her, but frightened by his off-putting appearance and strange behavior, Nancy refused. He went down the street, where he broke into the home of a young married couple, stole some of their valuables, urinated into a drawer of their infant's clothing, and defecated on their son's bed. The couple came home while Chase was still in the house. The husband attacked him, but Chase had escaped. Chase continued to attempt to enter homes, until he came across the home of David and Teresa Wallen. David was at work. Teresa, three months pregnant, was in the middle of taking out the garbage, and thus had left her front door unlocked. Chase surprised her in the home, and shot her three times, a defensive wound once in the hand and twice in the head, killing her. It was the same gun used to kill Chase's previous victim, Ambrose Griffin. Chase then dragged Teresa's body to her bedroom and raped her post-mortem while he repeatedly stabbed her with a butcher knife. When he had finished, he carved the corpse open and removed several of her internal organs, using a bucket to collect the blood and then taking it in the bathroom to bathe in it. He then sliced off her nipple and drank her blood, using an empty yogurt container as a drinking glass. Before leaving, he went into the yard, found a pile of dog feces, and returned to stuff it into the corpse's mouth and throat. On January 23, 1978, two days after killing Teresa Wallen, Chase purchased two puppies from a neighbor, which he then killed and drank the blood of, leaving the bodies on the neighbor's front lawn. 
On January 27th, Chase committed his final and most horrific murder. He entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroff, who was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew David. Also present in the home was Evelyn's six-year-old son Jason and Dan Meredith, a neighbor who had come over to check on Evelyn. Evelyn was in the bath while Dan watched the children. He went to the front hallway when Chase entered the home. He was shot in the head at point-blank range with Chase's 22 handgun, killing him. Again, this was the same gun used in the Griffin and Wallen murders. Chase then turned the corpse over and stole Dan's wallet and car keys. Jason ran to his mother's bedroom, where Chase fatally shot the six-year-old twice in the head at point-blank range. On the way to killing Jason, Chase also shot the baby, David, in the crib in his head. Chase then entered the bathroom and fatally shot Evelyn once in the head. He dragged her corpse onto the bed, where he simultaneously sodomized it and drank its blood from a series of slices to the back of the neck. Medical examiners reported inordinate amounts of semen in the corpse, including an unusual amount of penetration and foul play. When Chase had finished, he stabbed her at least half a dozen times with the knife penetrating her uterus. He stabbed her in a series of vital points of the body, which caused blood from her internal organs to pool into her abdomen, which he then sliced open and drained into a bucket. He then consumed all of the blood. Chase then went to retrieve the baby's corpse. He took it to the bathroom and split its skull open in the bathtub and consumed some of the brain matter. Outside, a six-year-old girl with whom Jason Mirath had a play date with knocked on the door, startling Chase. He fled the residence, stealing Dan Meredith's car, and the girl alerted a neighbor. The neighbor broke into the Meredith home, where he discovered the bodies and contacted the authorities. Upon entering the home, police discovered that Chase had left perfect handprints and perfect imprints of the soles of his shoes in Evelyn's blood. Chase, meanwhile, took baby David's corpse home with him, where he chopped off various appendages and used them like a straw to suck the blood out of the body. He then sliced the corpse open and consumed several internal organs and made smoothies out of others. He then finally disposed of the corpse at a nearby church. It seemed to Chase that he would get away with these brutal series of murders, but he didn't realize just how quickly the police were closing in. After the Wallen murder, FBI agents were called in to investigate. They compiled a profile of the killer. They determined that the killer would be tall, malnourished, a loner, physically unclean, and that most importantly, he would continue to kill. Just five days after the mass murder, and after hearing the FBI profile, Nancy Holden, the old high school classmate who found Chase's gaunt appearance and erratic behavior off-putting, contacted police, saying she believed Richard Chase could be the killer. The police ran a background check on Chase, but they came across his registration of a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Detectives and a team of police went to Chase's apartment, where they asked to speak with him. Chase refused, so the detectives and police hid down the hallway and waited for Chase to leave, arresting him when he finally left the apartment, carrying a blood-stained box. His parka and shoes were likewise blood-stained. Inside the box were pieces of shredded, blood-soaked wallpaper, and a blood-stained 22 pistol with which he had committed those murders. 
Chase claimed that the bloody wallpaper and gun were a result of killing several dogs. When the police performed a search of Chase's person, they found that he was carrying Dan Meredith's wallet. Detectives performed a search of Chase's apartment. Aside from the rotting, putrid smell, they found the walls, floor, ceiling, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating and drinking utensils soaked in blood. On the counter was the blender Chase used to make his smoothies. It was caked in coagulated blood and rotting matter of internal organs. Inside the refrigerator, police found several animal body parts wrapped in aluminum foil, David's brains in a Tupperware container, and pieces of his body wrapped in saran wrap, and several of Evelyn Mirot's and Teresa Wallen's internal organs. On another counter were several pet collars. On his kitchen table, he had spread out numerous diagrams depicting various aspects of human biology. A calendar showed the inscription, Today, on the dates of the Wallen and Mirroth murders, and chillingly, the same word was written on 44 more dates yet to come during that year. Finally, on March 24th, the baby's body was found. A church janitor came upon a box containing the remains of a male baby. He called the police. When they arrived, they recognized the clothing. It was the missing boy from the Merrith home. In 1979, Chase stood trial on six counts of murder. In order to avoid the death penalty, the defense tried to have him found guilty of second-degree murder, which would result in a life sentence. Their case hinged on Chase's history of mental illness and the suggestion that his crimes were not premeditated. Chase then took the stand in his own defense. He looked awful. Having dropped in weight to 107 pounds, his eyes were sunken and lustrous, he claimed to have been semi-conscious during the Wallen murder, and he described in detail the way he had been mistreated much of his life. He admitted to drinking Wallen's blood. He did not recall much about the second series of murders, but he knew that he had shot the baby in the head and decapitated it, leaving it in a bucket in the hope of getting more of its blood. He thought the baby was something else, but he did not elaborate. Chase confessed he thought his problems stemmed from the inability to have sex with girls as a teenager, and he said he was sorry for the killings. The defense asked for a verdict of second-degree murder to spare Chase the death penalty, since he was clearly insane and had never been given the proper help. The opposing lawyer argued that he was a sexual sadist, a monster, who knew what he was doing and who could not be salvaged. On May 8th, the jury in the highly publicized case found Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder, and Chase was sentenced to die in the gas chamber of the San Quentin Correctional Facility. They rejected the argument that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. His fellow inmates, aware of the graphic and bizarre nature of Chase's crimes, feared him, and according to prison officials, they often tried to persuade Chase to commit suicide. At one point, Chase admitted to another inmate that he had drank the blood of his victims because he had blood poisoning. He needed the blood, and he had simply grown tired of hunting and killing animals. On the day after Christmas in 1980, one day short of the third anniversary of his killing spree, the guard looked in on Richard Chase. The condemned man was lying on his back in his bunk, breathing normally. He did not return the guard's greeting, which was not unusual. At 11.05pm, the same guard looked into the cell once again. Chase was on his stomach. Both legs extended off his bunk, and his feet were on the floor. His head was against the mattress and his arms extended toward the pillow. The guard called out to Chase, who failed to move. He went in and pulled Chase off the bed. It was clear to him that the Vampire of Sacramento, a.k.a. Dracula, was dead. 
K.P. Holmes, the coroner, was called. He searched the cell and located a strange suicide note about taking pills. Chase had been taking a daily dose of medication to treat hallucinations and depression, which came to his cell in a package of three pills. Apparently, he had hoarded the pills and then overdosed. The cause of his death was toxic ingestion. His heart was found to be normal and in good shape, despite his lifelong concerns. The prison psychiatrist noted that Chase had been psychotic since the time he had entered the prison, but no one much bothered about the nature of his bizarre obsession with blood. Richard Trenton Chase was buried at the now-defunct San Quentin Prison Cemetery. He was just 30 years old. The Vampire A revered creation and subculture of the horror genre that has captured the interests of millions of minds alike. Though it may be interesting when art imitates life, or life imitates art, in the case of Richard Chase, nothing can be as inhumanly chilling. The often told tale of the vampire is a soulless creature giving the illusion of immortality at a selfish consuming price is something scary in its own right. But perhaps the most frightening thing about the story we just heard is that the monster isn't some demon from the undead bowels of hell. It's human, like you or I. Now I'd like to hear what you think. Is there any way to stop people like Richard Chase from becoming serial killers? Perhaps an intervention at a young age? Or proper lifelong treatment from a hospital or institution? Do you think he was purposefully mimicking the traits of a vampire? Or do you believe his mind was too far gone into his psychosis that his behavior was simply coincidental? Please, by all means, let me know by leaving a comment at itsalivepodcast.com, reaching out on our Facebook page, or tweeting us at itsalivepod. I'd like to thank murderpedia.org, as well as thecrimemuseum.org, for helping me in my research. As someone who always decided my backup career would be a psychologist, I love delving deep into the troubled and twisted mind. And after all the research I've done on serial killers throughout the years, I believe this may be the only case where I felt physically sick researching more and more about the details and crimes of Richard Chase. So, once again, thank you Murderpedia and the Crime Museum for that. And with that, our shock session has come to an end. And though I feel strange by saying this, I truly hope you enjoyed our time together. Because I know I did. As always, my co-host Eric and I will be broadcasting from beyond the grave from the realm of horror pop culture on the It's Alive podcast, at which you can listen to us at itsalivepodcast.com and on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening and indulging in my morbid curiosity. Though I guess that makes two of us now, doesn't it? Be sure to stay tuned for more shock sessions striking the dark days between regular episodes of the It's Alive podcast. I am Dracula. Actually, I am Chris, reminding you to lock your doors at night, and to our loyal listeners, simply remember to stay alive.